Amen. All right, James chapter 5 uh, is where we are. We've been uh, going through the book of James here in the Auditorium Sunday School class. So, James chapter 5 is where we find ourselves now. We did part of this section last week, uh, verses uh, 7 through 11. We'll go back and read that for the flow. But uh, the theme of James chapter 5, well, depending on who's writing the outline, (laughs) is the necessity of patience. Others have outlined it differently, but that's the approach that we're taking, right? James chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he received the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Take my brethren the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord, for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. You've heard of the patience of Job, and you've seen the end of the Lord, that he is very pitiful and of tender mercy. So we left off in the middle of that section last time talking about patience with God's timing. We were in verse 10 last week. Take my brethren the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. The word here for uh, patience in verses 7 and 8, be patient unto the coming of the Lord. Verse 8, be patient, establish your hearts. Um, it does mean patience, but there's a little bit different emphasis. This is a different word than we see in James chapter 1. Uh, in James chapter 1, it says, The trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work. The idea in chapter 1 is to kind of remain under the pressure, remain under the load or under the difficulty. And it seems like the emphasis in that case is the um, you know, being under a trial of God's doing. In chapter 5 here, the word patience, a little bit different word that has more to do with um, the idea of long-suffering. This seems to be more like uh, patience in the face of man's actions, whether they're justified or not. Um, So here in verse number 10, when it talks about the prophets being an example of patience, it's talking about prophets having faced you know, injustice or wrongdoing at the hands of man and continuing uh, to be, have a patient waiting for the Lord, a confidence uh, in God's timing. So, you know, take my brethren, the prophets. We could give a lot of examples. We mentioned last week you know, some of the more familiar ones. Uh, Jeremiah is one who uh, spoke the truth. God said, I'm going to bring judgment on Jerusalem. What did, what did Israel want to hear? You know, no, this is God's house and we're God's people and nothing bad will ever happen here. And it was almost, I mean, basically what the people wanted to do was stick their fingers in their ears, la, 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 I can't hear you, you know, and ignore what they were being told. Jeremiah said, well, whatever, you can do what you want, but this is what's going to happen. And sure enough, Just as God prophesied through Jeremiah, the Babylonian army came and captured Jerusalem. That would be, I think, a classic uh, example 
of a prophet who did right, faced opposition or persecution because of it, and had to demonstrate patience. Demonstrating patience or long-suffering or you know, a persistence in the face of wrongdoing ultimately is an um, exhibition, is a demonstration of faith, right? You know, if I have confidence in the legal system in America, then I can say, okay, you know, I, this, this is not right, but I'm going to let the court system run its course, and, you know, I think I'll be vindicated in the end because I think, you know, this was set up to protect the innocent. Now, how many of you feel that way about the American justice system in 2024? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the more news that you get, the more cynical. It, 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 it's easy to become more cynical about, you know, is this really, you know, the scales with the blindfold, so to speak? Is it truly, you know, just evaluating the facts? Or is the system, you know, somebody got a thumb on the scale to tip it one way or the other, right? But as an example, you could say, well, okay, I believe that the justice system will run its course and I'll be vindicated. That may or may not be well-placed faith, but this kind of patience in the face of mistreatment by others is faith that God is in control. And whether I may or may not trust the you know, different components of the legal system, whether it's the prosecutors or the judges or the appeals courts or the lawmakers you know, putting the laws in place to start with, you can trust the ultimate judge, the God of heaven. And the prophets, using Jeremiah as an example, his patience in the face of rejection, mistreatment, he was thrown in jail and the king basically said, okay, you're staying in jail till I prove you're wrong. And after the king died and God sent his judgment, you know, then um, uh, he was released from jail by others. But that kind of patience requires a faith in God that says, even though people are mistreating me, God will take care of it in his time. That is why we say that this is patience with God's timing. Verse 11, Behold, we count them happy which endure. Now, happy has different connotations to different people. But uh, this word here, we, uh, the phrase, we count them happy, is related to the same word that we see in the New Testament, blessed. You go back to the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, blessed is the man, right? Uh, you go back to the Psalms, blessed is the man. The phrase here, um, behold, we count them happy, which endure. Um, the idea is the, the man who endures is blessed by God. We consider them to be um, smiled upon by God, is blessed, all right? Now, how many of us would voluntarily categorize all right, persecution or mistreatment as a blessing of God? Okay, how about trials that the Lord allows? Is that a, you know, it's not easy for us to count that to be the blessing of God or that which would produce happiness. But James is saying those that endure in God's, in God's way of reckoning, they are blessed and can be happy. The word endure here is related back to the, the term for patience in chapter 1. It's the idea of bearing up under a load, bearing up under pressure, okay? Or, if I can say it this way, to bear up under trial. Behold, we count them happy which endure. 
So in other words, the blessings of God, the joy of the Lord comes from those who stick it out, not those who get mad and quit in the middle. You have heard of the patience of Job, and you've seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Now you have a contrast here. Those that endure are happy. Those that do not endure are um, are unhappy, are not blessed to the Lord. I found a, a very interesting uh, contrast to that, uh, or a contrasting characters in the Old Testament. Commentator suggested it, looked it up, and thought, yeah, that, that seems like a pretty good contrast. If we go all the way back to the early years of King David, Saul identified David as a threat, and he said, I've got to eliminate David. I know what I'll do. I'll marry off my daughter Michael to him. She'll be the bait in the trap. She's the peanut butter in the mouse trap. Okay? If you're the daughter, how do you feel about that? You feel valued and loved and appreciated, right? So the idea was he had messengers approach David and say, hey, the king really appreciates what you did with Goliath and he thinks you're a real asset to the kingdom and he wants you to marry into the royal family. He wants to offer you the chance to marry his daughter. And he says, I'm a poor man. I don't have the dowry for a king's daughter. He said, that's okay. You kill a hundred Philistines and you'll take that as a dowry. So the idea was he was trying to let the Philistines kill David so his hands were clean in the eyes of the public. David's like, all right, deal, no problem. He went and killed 200 Philistines. Okay, so he marries into the family. Well, Saul's daughter, Michael, was too much like him. All right, she was, um, I think, in mindset and temperament, all that, a lot like her daddy. And as a result of that, she was able to advise David, this is what he's getting ready to do. If you don't take steps now, he's going to get you. So when Saul sent messengers to his daughter's house to, ex- to bring his son-in-law to his court so his son-in-law could be executed. You ever think about it in those terms? <laughs> what did Michael do? She lied. She said, oh, he's sick. He's, he's in the bed sick. So I go back and tell Saul. He comes back. Well, bring the bed here. You know. um, meanwhile, Michael has helped David escape and he runs away and he hides out with Samuel for a while. But when... Saul begins to question his daughters. She's like, he threatened me. He said he was going to kill me if I didn't help him. She seems to be one that, you know, wilted in the face of pressure. I mean, later on when Michael comes back into the picture, Saul wanted to marry her off to somebody else, and he did. And, you know, there's no indication. We're just, we kind of find out about that after the fact. But when uh, she comes back to David again, There's pressure and whatever, and she kind of crumbles in the face of that pressure. She mocks David for his desire to bring back the ark and that kind of thing. She had an ideal situation and kind of ran away from the pressure. Now you contrast that with David's second wife, Abigail. Who was Abigail's first husband? You remember? Nabal. Okay, Nabal's, his name means fool or folly. And when Abigail's trying to apologize for him, the best thing she could say about him is his name is fool and he lives up to his name. His name is Nabal and folly is with him. But what did, Na- what did Abigail do? She was in a difficult situation and she remained faithful. She tried her best to honor her husband, to do what was right. 
knowing that he was an extremely difficult man to get along with. And that kind of character really impressed David. So in the contrast, which one was happy? The one that endured or the one that tried to wiggle out in the middle of a difficult situation? Yeah, Abigail, the one that endured, would be uh, the one that was happy. Right? And then the kind of the ultimate example is given in Job. You have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord. You've heard of the patience of Job. You remember um, who's James's target audience here? The 12 tribes scattered abroad, right? James was one of, I think, the, um, the founding pastors of the church at Jerusalem, if we want to say it that way. And so that was very much his audience. So they were familiar with Job. Now, I'm just going to review. I'm turning back to Job so that hopefully I can get the numbers right. Okay. But in Job chapter 1, we're told that Job had seven sons, three daughters. He had a thousand sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 she-asses, and a very great household. The end of verse 3 of chapter 1 says, This man was the greatest of all the men of the East. All right? His wealth was measured in cattle and livestock, not in gold and silver. So that kind of tells you the economy when he lived. But when you read that list, you know, 5,000, um, was no, excuse me, 3,000 camels, 7,000 sheep, 500 yoke of oxen. A yoke of oxen was the tractor of Bible days, right? So if he had 500 tractors, okay, for sake of a modern day comparison, he had stuff, right? And even if all of them weren't broken and trained, I mean, he's got older ones, he's got younger ones, and you got the whole process that's constantly going on. I mean, you try to put that, I mean, we're not talking about somebody with 100 acres that farms a little bit, right? We're talking about, you know, the equivalent of some of these corporate farms that have bought up thousands of acres in the Midwest somewhere. And, you know, anymore, one combine for harvesting corn or wheat is anywhere from half a million to a million dollars just for the, the combine, you know. Um, in fact, rich investors in Chicago and New York and San Francisco and places like that, they'll buy combines and then lease them to the farmers and make money off the investment that way, and they don't own <laughs> a half an acre of farmland. But the point is that Job would have been on that level, okay? 500 yoke of oxen, 3,000 camels. You ever been around a camel at a zoo or an exhibit of some kind? I mean, one or two is enough, right? What do you do with 3,000 camels? Obviously, that was you know, long-distance transportation. We, we see that in, in the story of Abraham. And when Abraham's servant went back to uh, find a bride for Isaac, he took 10 of his master's camels and went back, right? And that was immediately seen as a sign of affluence, you know, that, that he had 10 camels. Well, Job had 3,000. How do you feed 3,000 camels? How much land do you have to have to graze 3,000 camels and 7,000 sheep? I mean, if you've studied anything about sheep, you know they tend to chew it down to the nubs, so you've got to keep moving them, right? You ever think about that? 
how much land did he have to either own or have access to to, take, to handle that many sheep? What is he doing with that many camels? I mean, did he just like them as pets? I mean, from, from kind of what I've seen, they're not generally the most um, user-friendly critters. <laughs> can be a little bit cantankerous. You know, maybe he had a, a courier business. Maybe he had a shipping business. I don't know. What do you do with 3,000 camels? Um, but it, it says here in Job 1 that he was the greatest of the men of the East. Okay? And yet we're told in Job chapter 1 that every day he offered intercession on behalf of his children. He said, in case any of my children have sinned, he offered a, sac- a burnt uh, offering on behalf of them every day. And the Spirit of God gives the testimony of him that he was perfect, upright, feared God, and eschewed evil. In the end of Job chapter 1, we're told in all this, or two different places, we're told in all this, Job sinned not nor charged God foolishly, right? Job had everything, and Job did not know why on one particular day the enemies swooped in and began to um, steal his things. Verse 13, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking. There came a messenger, said the oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell on them and took them away. The oxen and the ass were stolen and then he says in verse 16, the fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants. Years ago, a friend of mine, um, we were doing fine arts for uh, Christian school. Um, he chose to do one of these interpretive speeches that, you know, last thing in the world I'd sign up for, but he liked it. And it was a humorous speech. He was pretty good at it. And the title of, I don't remember the text of it, but I do remember the title of his little humorous speech. The title of his speech was A Terrible, Awful, No Good, Very Bad Day. <laughs> okay? And he begins to describe, describe all the things that have happened to him. I don't remember anything about that humorous speech, but I think Job's day here falls into that category. Terrible, awful, no good, very bad day. His, all the, you know, his 500 tractors, the, the yoke of oxen, they're all stolen. All the she-asses, again, farm animals, pulled the wagons and used for uh, various tasks in an agricultural society. They're all stolen. What's even worse is the servant called it the fire of God from heaven. You know, it came from heaven, it must be from God. We know that it was an imitation of God's power. Satan had been granted certain permission by God to do that. But his, his bank account, if we could say it this way, the stock market crashed and he went from being Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, to being like you and me in one day. And if that wasn't bad enough, another servant shows up and said, hey, there was a great wind from the wilderness and basically a tornado. And it wiped out the house where all your kids were eating a meal together and all ten of your kids are dead in the same day. I mean... You think about any one of those factors. I mean, all my farm equipment is stolen. What am I gonna, how am I going to operate now? But then all my cash crop with the sheep, with the, the wool or the meat or whatever, my, ca- my cash animals are gone. And then my family's destroyed. All in one day. That'd be enough to make almost anybody quit, right? In fact, probably anybody but Job would have quit. We're told, you know, it's the, probably familiar to most of you, 
Job 1 verse 21, this is what he said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. That, word, that term charged God foolishly there means to make an accusation like the prosecutor accusing someone of a crime. Job took all of that. Well, then Satan shows up before God and God says, well, I told you. You see what Job did? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He'll do anything to save his own skin. You let me touch his own skin. And God said, okay, you can go this far, but you can't kill it. So then he loses his health. His wife is grieving. And she said, why are you putting up with this? Why don't you just end it all? Why don't you just curse God and die? And he said, you're speaking, as, you're speaking foolishly. You're speaking as one of the foolish women speaking. Hey, that's, that's foolish. I don't like it. I don't understand it. But I'm going to trust God. That was the attitude of Job. And then Job's friends showed up. Now, I think they truly were his friends. I mean, if you look at the, where they were from, the distance that they traveled, and I think they, they genuinely cared about Job. They were just genuinely misguided. Okay, his friends showed up. You ever told somebody, hey, you're, you're a lot like Job's friends? Somebody tells you that, are they complimenting you? No. Okay, what they're saying is you're a big discouragement. And Job's friends basically had a very narrow, black and white, if I could say it this way, elementary school view of God. If you read Job's friends... And then you listen to the prosperity preachers today, there's not a lot of difference. If you do well, God blesses you. If something bad happens, it's obvious that God's judging you. That sounds a lot like the health, wealth, and prosperity thing that's on TV, right? It, you, know, you do this, God has to bless you. And if you don't, I mean, if you're not in this circumstance, then obviously there's some sort of sin or at least some sort of lack of faith in your life. No, what Job's friends did not understand is that God works outside of this box. Just because they had never observed it before, and quite honestly, Job hadn't learned this lesson yet either, because how many times did he say, I have no idea what God's doing? Every time he would answer back, his, I, I don't know, but you're wrong. <laughs> I haven't um, you know, looked wrongfully I have at my neighbor's wife. I haven't stolen. I haven't oppressed. I have not mistreated the poor. He, all the accusations, they, they pretty much said, hey, Job, why don't you just you know, confess your sin to God and get this over with? And he said, this is not judgment for anything. And so then they kind of ramp it up. Well, obviously, you've done something because you're being judged. Now, we're, we got to play by play. Right? We know that Satan appeared before the Lord and had this conversation and God says you can go this far and no farther. Right? You can go this far and no farther. We know that the fire was not of God when it came from the heavens, from the sky. But did Job know that? Not at all. He didn't know that. It's hard enough for us, knowing the backstory with Job, to say, all right, Lord, as far as I know, this is not, you know, a spanking for anything that I've done. I'm going to trust you like Job did. When we know the backstory, Job trusted the Lord with no idea what the backstory was. He did not know about this conversation in heaven. He was unfamiliar. And the more they pushed him, 
to admit fault, the more he defensive he got and he kind of went too far in defending himself. Which is why when God begins to speak, as recorded in along about chapter 37 or 38, God speaks to Job. He just kind of ignores the other guys and God speaks to Job. And says, where were you? Where were you? Where were you? Where were you? Can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do this? Do you know this? Do you know this? Do you know this? Do you know this? And Job's like, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. I spoke of things that I knew not. It's basically what Job said. God didn't answer his questions. You go back and read 38, 39, 40, and 41 in Job. God never answered his questions. God may have told him later, but we're not told that Job ever got the answers that we have in the book of Job. What God wanted Job to do was adjust his view of God's control of life and and circumstances. He wanted Job to have a different perspective on how God operates. And basically Job says, you know everything, I know nothing, you're in charge. Right? Without the benefit of hindsight that we have. Now, that, you know, it's an entire book uh, in the Old Testament, would have been familiar to James's readers. But what's the time span here? We don't know exactly. I mean, we know that the major events of losing his children and all of his possessions happened in one day, and then there's an interval of time, and then Satan's allowed to touch his body, and that lasted for a little while. And once his friends showed up, it says that, They sat there for seven days and didn't say anything because of his grief, which was pretty much the smartest thing they said the whole time they were there. But, I mean, this process lasted days, weeks. Even when God spoke to him, we don't know how long it was before at the end we're told he had twice as many sheep and twice as many camels and all that kind of stuff. But, I mean, did God just, you know, drop them in his uh, pastures the next week? Did that slowly build up? What I'm saying is we tend to think of it kind of in snapshots. When Job demonstrated a patience and a trust in God's timing and God's control over an extended period of time. So back in James chapter 5, you may still be there. I'm going to turn back over there so I quote it correctly. You've heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. What is the end of the Lord? Does that mean His death? What is the end of the Lord? I think that means the end goal or the purpose. Okay, If I say it this way, God's, God's permitting of the trials in Job's life were for a desired end. He was trying to accomplish a purpose in Job's life. What was it? He was trying to teach Job that God operated in a far different sphere than what Job had understood up to that point. Okay, He was going to use Job as an example for centuries for people like you and me. Okay, But you have seen the end of the Lord. So in other words, we have an example of Job who trusted God not knowing what the end was. And now... James, to his readers, is saying, we have a little more insight into the Lord's goal. 
His end purpose. All right, what is the Lord's goal for you and me while we're here? If we could sum it up, I mean, I know there's a lot of things that we could give a list of things that we should be doing, but if we were kind of wrap it all up in a summary, how could we do that? Waiting for his return. And that's a theme in James chapter 5. What's another, you know, good uh, summary of while we wait for his return, how does he want us to conduct ourselves? Could we say being, yeah, honor him and bring him glory. And do I do that by being more like the world? Or more like, yeah, we're going to do that by being more like Christ. So what's the end of the Lord in your life and my life? Wait on the Lord and while I do it, become more like Christ. I would, if I had to summarize it in one word, I'd say the end of the Lord is Christ-likeness. That's the goal. Isn't that what Romans 12 says? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To be Christ-like would be God's desire for us. You've heard of the end, you've seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. That term there, uh, very pitiful, is an interesting word. Um, it has the idea of much pity or, you know, an abundance of compassion. And then tender mercy. Again, I, when I think of that, I think of Psalm 103. Psalm 103, verse number 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. Verse 10, Psalm 103, verse 10, He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. What are we talking about in James chapter 5? The Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Psalm 103 says, As the heaven is high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward them that fear Him. Last night, I was uh, driving home at just the right time, spotted something I knew my wife would be interested in. You know, it was a full moon just barely coming up over the horizon. It had that peach or orange color, you know, very bright and distinct. Okay, well, by, you know, three hours later, it was, the moon was much higher in the sky. Did you ever stand there and look at it and try to calculate the distance from here to the moon? Okay. Or, you know, look at the stars. Or one of the things I really liked to do as a kid, because, you know, where my parents still live, where I grew up, um, is about five miles from an Air Force base, so there were always airplanes. Every time I was outside, there'd be airplanes going over, and a lot of times that Vapor trail behind them would, would freeze and leave that white trail in the sky for a while. Try to figure out how high I'd have to jump or how hard it would be to get that high. As the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy. Okay, what I'm talking about is still in our atmosphere. The moon is, is further out, the sun is much further out. And we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of the true distance of our universe, right? That is the comparison. Ultimately then, what are we to take from that? That the distance is unmeasurable by humans. 
And in the same way, God's mercy is unmeasurable. As the heaven is high above the earth, so great is His mercy. Just as the distance from here to heaven is unmeasurable by man, so God's mercy is unmeasurable or unlimited. Verse 12, another illustration. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath He removed our transgressions from us. All right, you're familiar with that illustration, right? You take the globe that you have in a classroom, and if you go south, eventually you hit the pole, and you, if you keep going the same direction, you're going north again, right? But if you go east, you can go east forever. You're never going to meet west. That's the illustration here. As far as the east is from the west... So far hath he removed his transgressions from us. Verse 13, Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. Why? For he knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we're dust. It's not real flattering, but it's the truth. God knows that we're dirt balls that he breathed life into, so his expectations are not all that high. Some people have derided certain branches of theology as, if I could say it this way, worm theology. Because oh, man is a worm. And there is some truth to that. Now, man is not without value in God's sight. And that, you know, that's an, there's an extreme to that that we should not go. But here, God remembers that He formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into His nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So as such, yeah, God is merciful with us because He doesn't expect too much of us. In other words, we probably expect more of ourselves than, than He expects from us in some ways. Right? We think too highly of ourselves. But I think Psalm 103 is a great explanation of this phrase in James chapter 5. The Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Like as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those that fear Him. As high as the heaven is above the earth, so great is His mercy toward them that fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath He removed our transgressions from us. Alright? Why is that statement recorded here? Because not only does the Lord have a desired goal, or He has an intended result that He's trying to accomplish in our life, His working in that is merciful and compassionate. Even when God allows trials, like we read in James chapter 1, and of course the ultimate example of that, other than the Lord Jesus Christ, would be Job from a human standpoint. Even when God allows that, He is merciful. And with Job, what was the end result of it? God restored his family. God gave him twice as much as he had before materially. Now the fact that he got double the sheep and oxen and all that, did that change his statement in chapter 1? Naked came out of my mother's womb and naked will I return to the grave? No, I mean, he was still going to leave it all behind. But the Lord was merciful and blessed him. But here, we see that the Lord is merciful. If God brings trials and asks us to endure them, it is because he has a purpose, whether we understand it or not. We should trust his mercy, his compassion, his wisdom, and his control of things, whether it's a trial that God brings, which is the terminology used here, enduring, of Job. It's the idea of James chapter 1 and enduring trials. Or whether it's the other term, as we've seen uh, earlier in James chapter 5, the idea of long-suffering or putting up with mistreatment from others. In either case, we are to trust that God is good, that God is in control, and that God has a reason for allowing what He does.
Now, it's easy to say when everything's going pretty well. Much harder to say when light's blowing up in your face. But thank the Lord that He gave us examples like this. You've heard of the patience of Job. And yeah, we've heard of it, but sometimes it does us good to just ponder on it a little bit. If Job could trust God not knowing the rest of the story, then having much more information, I should be able to demonstrate patience. You know, I, I refusal to give up on trusting God no matter what I see, you know, trusting God with the outcome. May we be like Job. In fact, in Ezekiel 14, when God was giving a testimony, He said this, Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would only save themselves. That was a prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem. But Job was held up by God as an example. We're never going to get our names in this book. This book's finished. But may we strive to be an example of patience that would please the Lord. Lord, thank you for your word. and Help us to apply it as you um, allow circumstances in our life. Help us to be more Christ-like. Help us to wait for your coming with expectation. Help us to give you glory in how we live our lives. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name.